Magnus Podcast, episode 32. Welcome to Paradise with Anthony Esselin. Hey friends, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Great lecture coming to you, to you uh, today from Dr. Anthony Esselin's course on Dante's Divine Comedy inside of the Magnus Fellowship. This is after all the Easter season, so this lecture is going to be on the Paradiso. And uh, all, of, all of the lectures are recorded and, of course, available for viewing by our fellows on the website, magnusinstitute.org. If you're not a fellow, you can become one today. Apply for the fellowship right now. Anybody can do it, uh, whether or not you've graduated from one of our endorsed institutions. As soon as you apply and your application is processed, that usually takes a few weeks, we will send you uh, a beautiful, frameable certificate of fellowship that is, is more gorgeous than any diploma you could ever imagine. And it means, uh, it means just as much, okay? You can frame it, uh, put it on a resume, do whatever you want with it. We get that out of the way right off the bat, and the rest is learning for learning's sake. So you're not working your tail off for a sheepskin and then out the door with everything you've learned, you are a learner, a lifelong learner basking in the light of wonder with great texts and great faculty and great friends who you're going to meet in the fellowship. So become a fellow today, magnusinstitute.org. It's live, it's interactive, it's liberating, it's free. It always will be. Once you're in, all we ask is that you, well, be in class, show up interact. That's what makes it great. Uh, and give us money as you're able to, because that helps us offer more classes. Uh, if you're not able to, that's great. Somebody else will give double in your stead, but that's all you got to do. We don't ask, uh, we don't charge tuition. We don't require a payment to join. It really is as free as it is freeing. And I encourage you to join if you haven't already. Tell your friends about us too, magnusinstitute.org. You can apply for the fellowship today. All right, without further ado, here's a lecture from Dr. Anthony Esselin's course in the Magnus Fellowship on Dante's Divine Comedy. This is the first lecture uh, where we get into the Paradiso. And of course, I did leave the uh, discussion after this lecture for you to hear so you can get a taste of the beauty happening with our fellows and the interactivity. It's really a good thing. Magnusinstitute.org. Here's the lecture. Enjoy it. Bye-bye. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, um, we are in paradise, and, uh, uh, you know, if... if um, if, if people reading the Divine Comedy for the first time, when they come to purgatory, uh, are surprised because it's not like hell, it's nothing like hell. When they come to paradise, I think they must be uh, thoroughly shocked, if not even dismayed, because it can't possibly be like anything that a modern person would expect. All right. 
uh, you know, it's it's not the happy hunting ground for uh, your Iroquois Indian. It's it's you know it's not that eternal baseball field. Um, nothing so um, nothing so. I'm going to say childish. All right, uh, not exactly childlike, but childish. Instead, what we've got is. Uh, a, a dive into a plunge into light into and into intellectual light, um, answering the questions that we thirst to have answered for us. Um, we want to know, we want to see, especially we want to be bathed in the vision of beauty. Um, and the strange thing is that that view of heaven is so peculiarly medieval and yet it's like, I say this in the introduction, it's like nothing that any contemporary person, any modern person would consider to be proper to the Middle Ages, but that's because they don't know about the Middle Ages. Okay, So let's just begin by going straight to it in Canto 1. The glory of the one who moves all things penetrates the universe with light, more radiant in one part and elsewhere less. I have been in that heaven he makes most bright and seen things neither mind can hold nor tongue utter when one descends from such great height. For as we near the one for whom we long, our intellect so plunge into the deep, memory cannot follow where we go. Nevertheless, what small part I can keep of that holy kingdom treasured in my heart will now become the matter of my soul. Um, it's stunning, okay? And I think that although the poetry of Paradise, um, well, the poetry is more difficult. It took me twice as long to translate this part as it took me to translate either of the other parts. Um, yet the poetry is more intense, more concentrated with meaning. Okay. And it's easy to have this slip by, but Dante, I think, is now uh, excruciatingly careful with every word, uh, with every line. Um, and uh, this, for instance, that, that third line, more radiant in one part and elsewhere less, that is a crucial line, okay? Uh, in una parte più e meno trove. It's a crucial line. Um, that's, that is going to be reflected all through the paradise in the various ways in which God has blessed with grace um, his creatures, whatever creatures they may be, and his human creatures, those who are saved. Um, there is no sense of equality here. Uh, there is equality in paradise, and we will get to that. But there is also a, a more important and fundamental and more beautiful inequality. And um, when I try to present this to my students, I've, I've always asked them, you know, uh, I've got a vision of the heavens for you. Uh, it's an equalitarian heaven. Okay, In these heavens, all the stars will be of exactly the same magnitude, and they'll all be clear white, and they'll be equidistant from one another, each to the next. It'll be like a, a grid work, a, a square grid work of stars of equal magnitude. Wouldn't that be beautiful? And they all laugh, and they say, of course that would not be beautiful. In fact, we wouldn't want to look at that at all. If you go outside and you had that to look at, uh, you'd rather look at the ground. 
you'd rather look at the irregular pock marks in a drop ceiling than look at that. It would be oppressive. Well, God has not created such a universe. God has created a universe in splendid variety, um, but that implies differences and they imply inequalities. And those are good, okay? Um, because everything that God has made is good. It's, it suggests a, a thoroughly complex order, um, not a flat sameness. Okay? Uh, another thing that's broached in these first few lines is that um, we are all, in fact, made for the desire of God. Okay? Uh, it's not, you know, I have this personal longing for God. You, you, you have another longing for money or for the Boston Celtics or whatever. It, that's not true. Um, we are made as human creatures. And as such, we all share the same longings. Okay? Um, whether we know it or not, we are made like that. We belong in the same kind. And the kind of creature that we are longs for God. And to long for God is to want to see him. Uh, that is what St. John says. It's what St. Paul says. Um, St. John says, you know, we, we will be like him in, in, in heaven, in glory. We will see him. We will know even as we are known, okay? Because we will be like him. We will see him face to face. Not, says St. Paul, as through a glass, darkly, okay? But face to face. To know even as we are, that's what we long for. So now he's come back and he says, I can't remember because the vision was so far beyond my capacity. I have only a little memory of it, but whatever I have, I treasure it in my heart. And now I'm going to make it the matter of my song. And he immediately invokes um, the muse. Now the Holy Spirit as the spirit of poetry and prophecy under the guise of the name Apollo. Oh, good Apollo, for this last work of art, make me as fit a vessel of your power as you demand when you bestow the crown of the beloved laurel. Sacred to Apollo. When you bestow the laurel wreath on the greatest of poets, um, make me a fit vessel for the power that you inspire such a poet with. Till this hour, Parnassus, the mountain sacred to you, has two peaks. I have required only one. Now I require both. Then surge into my breast. Entra nel petto mio. Enter into my breast. Espira. Even he's asking him to breathe into it. That's what it literally means to be inspired. It means to be breathed into. Hereby, Apollo as Holy Spirit and spirit of art and, um, and song, okay? Uh, breathe, breathe your song as when you drew the vain Marsyas from the sheath of his own limbs. You get the note here. Now, this, uh, I'm going to mention this. I don't generally like to focus on little details of mythology that um, uh, you're probably not familiar with, but Marsyas um, challenged Apollo to a singing contest. 
You don't challenge Apollo to a singing contest. This is an example of presumptuousness, okay? Um, it's the presumptuousness that's similar to that of Ulysses. I can, of my own power, get to the uh, what Ulysses didn't know was the mountain of purgatory, but there it is. That's where his boat wrecked. I can, of my own power, do that, okay? Uh, I am myself godlike, and I don't need the inspiration of God. Um, that's to be presumptuous. And you don't get away with that. Um, that's essentially to repeat um, as a poet, as an artist, as a thinker, the sin of Satan, which is to say, I'm my own. I don't need you. Satan's sin is to be like God without God, to pretend you can be like God without God. Okay. And for his presumptuousness, Marsyas who lost the singing contest, was flayed alive by Apollo. That is, his skin was removed in one piece. And if you think about it, that's a rather ironic uh, analogy there, an analog of what Dante is asking for himself now, because he wants to be, so to speak, uh, brought to transcend his own bodily limitations. Okay. He can't do that of his own power. He's asking, he's asking Apollo to do to him. He's asking the Holy Spirit to, to do to him, so to speak, what Apollo did to Marsyas. That is, but not, not by way of punishment, but by way of exaltation. Okay. Um, and we, we see this too, in uh, something uh, uh, that happens, something that is described it as the canto goes on, okay? Um, so uh, going to line 64, uh, Dante is looking into the eyes of Beatrice. Beatrice is looking into the sun, okay? And now there's only one creature on earth that is thought to be able to stare into the sun and not go blind. And that's the eagle. Okay. The eagle is an important image for Dante. It's also a symbol of the evangelist St. John, who it was thought, and I, I think too, uh, sees most deeply of the four evangelists into the divinity of Christ. Okay. Um, so she is like an eagle. We're going to meet St. John next week. She like an eagle staring into the sun. Dante doesn't. Dante is not of himself able to stare into the sun, but in looking into her eyes, he is then able to do so. Okay, um, he participates in her sanctity and the blessing that she receives from God. Line sixty-four: Into the everlasting wheels of light, Beatrice gazed with silent constancy. On her I gazed, far from that central sight. Her countenance had the same effect in me as did the plant that Glaucus tasted when it made him share the godhood of the sea. So you got to note fisherman who ate a sea plant and farm, found himself transformed into a sea god. Um, Dante is experiencing apotheosis, uh, that is, becoming 
a god or becoming godlike. Okay. To signify man's soaring beyond man, words will not do. And uh, if you look at the Italian on the left-hand side, I translate as man's soaring beyond man. Uh, the, the Italian is trasumanar, to transhuman, to transhumanate. Okay. The silly people who are hoping that one day they'll grow up to be robots, um, uh, longing for uh, the transhuman. That, that, uh, <laughs> well, we have here in Dante, but we have it in quite a different way, right? Uh, man's soaring beyond man. Now, this is enabled by the grace of God, by the will of God. But it's also something deeply human, as Beatrice is going to show, that it is, it is built into our very nature to want to transcend the human. Okay, um, How could it not be if we are made by God in his image to be uh, blessed, to be satisfied only in the knowledge of God? But of course, though that is our nature, that is our aspiration, by nature, we can't attain it on our own. Uh, our human capabilities can't get us there. Um, but the grace of God can lift us there. Well, to signify that verba, using the Latin that Dante does, in words, words will not do. Let the, my comparison suffice for them for whom the grace of God reserves the experience. So the whole of paradise is going to be an account of this Thrasumanar. Right? And he's always going to be at a loss for words. Uh, he's, he'd been at a loss for words once in a while before, but now it's going to be constantly. I can't really put this in words. Any words that I use necessarily going to constrict. and. Um, so I'm often going to flail about and stretch words themselves to their breaking point. Okay. Um, now, this business of being uh, made to transcend oneself uh, is broached later in the canto. Dante suddenly finds himself not on the earth anymore. Okay. And he hasn't, it, it's happened almost instantaneously. Soon, he's not on the earth. Um, and uh, uh, Beatrice says, well, you know, why should you be? Uh, it is in your proper nature uh, to, to rise, okay? And he says, well, but, you know, I'm heavy. I'm heavier than the air. I'm heavier than the fire. How can this be, all right? Um, and uh, so starting with line 103, um, says Beatrice, all things possess order amongst themselves. This order is the form that makes the world resemble God. So God or has ordained the universe so that every kind of creature has its own mode of being, um, its own proper rest, which it seeks to attain, namely in God. Every created being, as it were, returns to God after the manner of its kind. Um, this is true also of man, though by free will he has the power to frustrate this end, okay? 
Um, so she says, she concludes all of this um, in line 136. No more amazement should it bring to you that you ascend than if a mountain stream should tumble rushing to the plains below. But it would be a cause of just surprise if free of every bar, you should remain like a still flame on earth and not arise. Uh, with all the impediments of sin removed, um, always, of course, by the grace of God and not by our unaided power, we rise. But it's in our nature to rise. Um, it's not in our nature to fall. It's contrary to our nature. Something's gone wrong there. It's in the nature of a mountain stream to fall inevitably, to tumble to the plains below. And that's what we would be like without sin in rising. It would be as natural and inevitable as that. Because God is our goal as naturally as the, the plains below the mountain or the goal of the mountain stream. Um, so let's meet somebody in uh, paradise here. And I'd like to go to Canto 3. Uh, gosh, I mean, I'm, I think I'm, I'm talking a little bit too much here. I'm going to be wasting time. But they, they go to, um, they are in the sphere of the moon. Now, I want to be very careful about something. Um, in Inferno and Purgatory, the souls are in definite physical places. Okay. This is not the case in paradise. The souls are all, be very clear about this, all of them in the presence of God. It is explicitly stated then that this, this scheme of the planets and the stars and the souls that belong to them is presented to Dante as an allegory. Okay? That's not where they are. Beatrice says so explicitly. Okay. Now, um, if you uh, have the old Ptolemaic system in which all of the um, heavenly bodies move about the earth, it doesn't mean that the earth is the greatest of everything because everything moves about it. The earth is, in some ways, the earth is the farthest place from God. Okay? God is the center of everything and earth is in the farthest circumference. That's another way to look at it. And Dante has us look at it that way too. But in any case, if, if that's the case, the earth is the center, then there are going to be um, three planets that are between us and the sun, namely the moon, Mercury, and Venus. And because they're between us in the, and the sun, um, sometimes, well, we can be between them and the sun. And uh, the shadow of the earth that the cone of the shadow of the earth can pass across it. Hence, we get lunar eclipses because the shadow of the earth blocks the light of the sun. Okay. Um, beyond the sun, that's not possible. Okay. Not possible for the earth to block the light of the sun uh, on Jupiter, whatever. Um, so the, the souls that are presented to us before we get to the circle of the sun are blessed, but there's, there was some undue attachment to things of the earth that are like a shadow on our evaluation of their past lives. Um, in the case of the moon, 
It's the shadow of inconstancy, which is appropriate. Think when you look at the moon, you, you see phases of the moon. Okay. You get a half moon, a quarter moon. Dante didn't know it, but if you have a telescope and you look at Venus, you see phases of Venus too. All right. Um, but you know, he didn't know that in any case. So the moon is associated with inconstancy and, and these souls here, um, had, they're the souls of people who had made a religious vow and didn't fulfill it. They, they didn't fulfill it, not because they didn't want to fulfill it, but, you know, fear or coercion uh, caused them to be derelict in their duty. And, you know, rather than be murdered, um, they, in a conditional sense, not in an absolute sense, consented to be torn away from the convent. Okay. And that was the case with Dante's brother-in-law's sister. So remember, he's married to Gemma Donati. Forese Donati is his brother-in-law. Uh, this is Forese's sister. Forese mentioned her in, in uh, Purgatory. Her name is Picard. Okay. And she's the soul who comes to uh, 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 see Dante and to talk to him. All right. Um, and uh, he, this is on page 29. Um, they're all happy to see him. She comes forward and she's very happy to see him. Uh, he barely, barely, after she identifies herself, he barely can sort of kind of see that it's her. Right. Um, this will be pretty much the last vision of a face that we get until we're very far um, into paradise. There's going to be a reason for that, but I'm not going to talk about it today. Um, he asks the obvious question, and it's the egalitarian question. But it's a question that that um, touches upon questions about the providence of God, about the nature of order itself, and God's created order. You know, wh what do you have? What is required by the very uh, idea of order, um, and uh, what charity is all about. Okay. Um, and this is a, so this is a crucial conversation. Dante wants to put it up front here uh, because it, it sheds its light upon so much of what follows. So he asks her, hey, you know, Picarda, do you ever wish um, you were up higher? Now, we will find out, Beatrice will tell us, every soul that he meets, as I said, is in the presence of God. But that doesn't mean that they enjoy the divine vision uh, in equal measures. Just as containers that are all full may have different amounts of that which fills them because some containers may be bigger than others, but they are all equally full. Okay. Tell me, he says, line 64, you who are so happy here, do you desire a place of greater height to see more, know more, and be held more dear? See more, know more, and, and to be more in love, right? With the rest of those shades, she smiled a bit. Then with such gladness, she replied to me, as a girl in the gleaming of first love, brother, frate, 
is very affectionate. The virtue of our charity brings quiet to our wills. So we desire but what we have and thirst for nothing else. If we should feel a yearning to be higher, such a desire would strike disharmony against his will who knows and wills us here. That cannot catch these wheels, as you shall see. Recall love's nature. Recall that heaven is to live in loving necessarily. For it is of the essence of this bliss to hold one's dwelling in the divine will who makes our single wills the same and his. So that although we dwell from sill to sill throughout this kingdom, that is as we please, as it delights the king in whose desire we find our own. In his will is our peace. That is the sea whereto all creatures fare, fashioned by nature or the hand of God. Then it was clear to me that everywhere in heaven is paradise, though the high good does not rain down his grace on all souls there equally. Um, I, I, I guess, I mean, it's a stunning speech, by the way, and the, that, one, that line, uh, in his will is our peace, justly famous. Um, Nella sua volontade nostra pace. Okay. It's one of those lines that everybody who knew Dante, um, Matthew Arnold in the 19th century says, you know, it's lines like this that really animate the soul. They're the touchstones of, uh, uh, you know, poetic, artistic, spiritual enlightenment. A line like that. Nella sua volontade nostra pace. It's... This is understandable only by love, but not in this way. That is, you know, it's kind of funny, but, you know, if you love, you can sort of kind of understand it. It's this. Um, if you love, not only will you understand this, you wouldn't want it any other way. Right? It's not just that Picarda does not envy. It is part of her very blessedness that the other souls are blessed more than she is, so to speak. Right? That's strange. Um, that's strange for us because envy is our default position. And we should be uh, careful about that because according to one of the texts in scripture, I think it's Ecclesiasticus, uh, it was or, or wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. It was envy that set the devil loose upon the world in the beginning. Um, and envy is a sadness. The worst envy is a sadness occasioned by somebody else's spiritual good. But to have it a source of joy that others should be blessed in a more glorious way than you are. Well, that is really... Uh, very special kind of love, isn't it? Um, and Christ has filled these souls with love. Okay? Um, we, you know, you thank God not only for the gifts he's given to you, you thank God for the gifts that he's withheld from you, um, but given to somebody else. That's, that's the uh, exact opposite of him, right? Um, so 
I mean, we learned something here. We learned something very important, and it's going to continue all throughout the paradise. Right? So, for instance, it continues when we get beyond these uh, three spheres, right? Where in, in, the, in the sphere of the moon, they were in constant, they didn't fulfill their religious vows. In the sphere of Mercury, these were souls uh, attached in an undue way to responsibilities on earth and glory on earth, political glory, especially. All right. Um, so we meet Justinian, the emperor from the East. Okay. Venus obviously is going to be associated with love. Okay. Uh, with, uh, you know, sexual desire. Um, but beyond those three, we, when we get to the sun itself, Dante now marks a division in paradise that's coordinate with his divisions that he's marked in Inferno and Purgatory, right? Now, it, it's, it's not the same, but it's, it's analogous, right? In Purgatory, you have those souls who aren't yet atoning for their sins. So they aren't really in Purgatory yet. They want to get there. And in Canto 10, we get there, okay? Um, in Canto 10 of the Inferno, we get into the city of this, inside the walls, and inside the walls are those souls um, separated from the others because the others are characterized by an improper, uh, undue, uh, extravagant love of things of this earth, whether food or sex or shiny rocks that you find in the ground, gold and silver and whatnot. Um, inside that city, you get evil for evil for its own sake in a certain regard, right? You get fraud and treachery and violence, so on. Uh, well, here now, um, Dante begins again. Uh, these are these these are the souls of saints uh, across whom no shadow of the earth passes. All right, um, there. We don't say, oh, well, they're saints, even though, and then you fill in the blank. Um, these are the greatest of the saints now. And, and each of the heavenly bodies will, uh, from this point on, not, not be an allegory of some deficiency in their lives, but of the manner in which God blessed them, okay? Um, so, the sun, with intellectual vision, with wisdom. Uh, Mars, with martial courage as Christian soldier, okay? Jupiter, with rulership, governance. Saturn, with mystical vision, devotion, okay? The fixed stars, there we get the greatest of the, the saints. We're gonna meet the apostles there, okay? The, the holiest of the holiest, all through the grace of God. Um, so anyway, it, Cano 10 marks this division, and it's all, almost as if we're beginning the paradise all over again. Uh, that inexpressible and primal power, looking on his begotten son with love, they breathe eternally. That is another Trinitarian invocation. Created all that turns through mind or place in heaven above with an order so sweet. No one can gaze upon the world without a taste of death. Under those lofty wheels, then, reader, raise your eyes with me. 
direct them to that part where two celestial circles cross and pass and fall enamored of that master's art whose gaze will never part from what he's made. So deeply does he love it in his heart. Um, there was a little bit, little bit of a very quick, I, I, I hope not too uh, 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 jumbled and unclear astronomy lesson here, okay? Um, there, are, there are three motions um, that, uh, or, or three, three facts, right? Two of them are motions, one is a fact, that explain um, to us, you know, uh, who consider that the earth revolves about the sun, that explain what the sun is doing in the sky and what the stars are doing in the sky, where you may happen to be located on the face of the globe. One of them is the revolution of the earth about the sun. Um, the other is the rotation of the earth on its axis once a day. And the third is the very tilt of that axis, 23 and a fraction degrees. Now, that's important because if it weren't for that, then we wouldn't care about the revolution of the earth about the sun. That would have no effect on the apparent motion of the sun in the sky or the stars in the sky, none at all, okay? But because it's tilted, it has an effect. Because you're in a different position relative to the sun and the stars, in the daytime, when you are facing the sun um, in one season of the year than in the other season of the year. Let's suppose you're in the northern hemisphere, okay? Sun is here. You're here. You're tilted towards the sun when you're in this position in the daytime. You're facing the sun here. Sun is over there, facing the sun um, when the tilt is towards the sun. All right. Six months later, you'll be on the other side of the sun. You'll be tilted. The same tilt, same exact tilt. Tilt doesn't change. But uh, when it's nighttime, that is when you're not facing the sun because on the other side of you, um, uh, you know, you'll be tilted towards, you'll be tilted downwards. When you are facing the sun, you'll be tilted away from the sun. So it'll be winter. Okay. Um, and you'll notice that the sun is more direct towards you when you're leaning towards it than when you're leaning away from it. Well, how that appears in the sky is that the sun is more directly overhead or not directly overhead. Okay. Uh, the path of the sun um, is dependent upon, you know, those, those three things. Um, the revolution of the earth about its axis, uh, the, the rotation of the earth about its, the revolution of the earth about the sun, and the tilt. Um, so in the equinoxes, uh, at, you know, when it's even Stephen day and night for the whole earth, um, then uh, uh, the sun at your, at your latitude, um, you know, will appear uh, in the exact middle path of where it appears during the your darkest day in winter and your brightest day in summer, um, the path, the apparent path across the of the sun across the sky is the ecliptic. It's called the ecliptic, uh, and it has a twenty three and a half degree tilt. Okay, as a matter of scientific fact, if it weren't for that tilt, there would be no life on Earth. Uh, the the equators uh, would broil. Um, There'd be glaciers halfway down the globe from the North Pole, halfway up the globe from the South Pole. I mean, life would be impossible. 
Um, there are temperate regions in the earth because of the tilt of the earth. If the earth were tilted more, for, for different reasons, life would be impossible, okay? Uh, and Dante is saying it's tilted just right. And that tilt of the earth, according, uh, according to him, is what provides a crucial variety uh, in the influences of all those, all the stars, the fixed stars, and these other bodies who don't have a fixed, that don't have a fixed position in the sky relative to each other. You look up at the sky, you see the same constellations every night, although they're in different positions, depending on the time of night and depending on the season of the year, right? But you look up in the sky and you see this point of light in the middle of a constellation where it wasn't two weeks ago. That's a planet, okay? In any case, and, and the planets, because they're in the same plane almost relative to the sun that the Earth is in. When we look up in the sky, they're going to seem to be uh, occupying the same general path the sun seems to occupy. So we're in the northern hemisphere. If you want to look up at the sun, you turn south. If you want to find a planet, you look south and you look across the path where you see the sun go every day. That's where your planets will be. They're not going to be up in the north. okay? And they're not going to be flat on the south because the sun is never there where we are. here, Okay. Wherever the sun is, there that's the same band the planets will be in. Um, for Dante, this this is a principle of differentiation, um, of uh, a provision of variety. Okay, um, see how the ring that sweeps the planets round tilts as it shoots from there to satisfy the world that calls upon their influence. For had their highway not been pitched awry. It would have quelled the power of many a star and rendered almost every potency dead here below. Everything would have been the same. But to come just too near or veer a little further from the level would rob the order of each hemisphere. Right? It's it, 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 saying it's it's the perfect slant. Now, for him, it's not the tilt of the earth. It's the uh it's the uh it's the tilt of the sun's path relative to the earth and it's spiraling motion right goes like this then it reaches its solstice then it comes back up like this just goes around and it reaches solstice up here and it goes back down like so spirals in the summertime spirals just goes back down the winter back and forth um every year there okay um and this is important because of what we're going to be talking about right so uh, Dante is in this circle of the sun. This is the circle of wisdom now. It, there is a real division here between these souls and the others. Uh, it, that is, we're supposed to think of them now. We're, 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 now we're really in paradise. We, we've always been in paradise. We're meeting souls that dwell within the presence of God. But Dante's marked the distinction here. Okay? So uh, all at once he sees 12 lights, 12 stars. Dancing around him in Beatrice, going to page 103. And one of the stars speaks to him. They were like ladies, line 79, pausing in their glee. They're like ladies in a dance. And in their happiness, they pause for a moment. They hold the reels places and resume the dance. When they catch the returning melody, began one dancer 
when the radiance of the Lord's grace, which lights the flames of true love and by love still grows in eminence, when that love with such multiplication shines in you, it leads you up these stairs no man may take descending without climbing up anew. And there we've, we've, we've got it. This is, this is a prophecy sure to be fulfilled. Dante is going to Paris. Okay. The grace of God that's brought him here is, has shines with such multiplication that anyone who has climbed these stairs will climb them again. All right. If that's the case, says this soul, he who would deny his flask of wine to slake your thirst would not be free, would have such power as rivers not returning to the sea. I'm going to pause here to make an important point. I, um, what what uh, this soul is saying, right? He's going to identify himself shortly. What this soul is saying is that to be free, really, ultimately to be free, is to um, is to dwell so perfectly in charity that acts of love are not only natural to you, but to fail in some regard in an act of love would be a kind of slavery, all right? Imagine a river not being able to return to the sea. Um, that would be the kind of bondage that a soul would be in if it refused the act of charity that is prompted by seeing someone here who is so greatly and peculiarly blessed by God. So a freedom here is not defined as an arbitrary uh, permission or capacity to do as you please. Freedom is the unimpeded attainment of your perfection as the kind of being that you are. And the kind of beings that we are, well, that kind is perfected in charity, which is the very life of God. Okay? It's not niceness. Uh, it may be nice, but it's not that, uh, essentially. It's essentially the very life of the Godhead. That's to be free. Okay? Um, and if I, so if I failed to fulfill your desire, which you haven't even spoken, I wouldn't be free. You long to know who are the plants that flower and garlanding your lady with our love, the lovely one who strengthens you for heaven. I was a lamb among the holy flock. Dominic leads to pasture by his rule where you can fatten well if you don't rove. Um, a wonderful, whimsical glance at Thomas Aquinas's girth. Um, he was a notoriously big man, um, probably somewhat autistic. He wasn't a glutton. He probably just never paid attention to what he was eating. Okay. Uh, so his brothers had to carve a semicircle out of the table in front of him for him to sit the more, more conveniently. Um, that was Brother Thomas, okay? And, and you know, I was in that flock with uh, the rest of Dominic's followers, and you can get really fat if you don't wander away. My brother and my master, now notice the gesture of superiority, right? He was superior to me. My brother and my master was the soul nearest my right, great Albert of Cologne, and Thomas of Aquino was my name. It's so beautiful, you know, so formal. Uh, uh, you know, so unlike we, we are now. Oh, yeah, my name's Tom. Uh, that guy, uh, 
with my friend Al. Um, this, this is beautiful in the speaking of it. And then he, he says, I'll, I'll tell you about all the rest here. Now, notice as we go through, they, they are characterized by different gifts. And the stars shine with different magnitudes. Even here, even in this circle of the 12, this garland of 12 souls of the wise, of the theologians. They're not all the same. And they don't all shine with the same brightness. I mean, the very fact that Thomas is singled out as the spokesman for the 12 suggests a preeminence in him, even though he uh, would give the preeminence first to his master, Albert, and then to two other souls in some regard, which we will see. So let me, let me uh, read this through. If you wish to be sure of everyone, follow my words. Follow them with your eyes, turning them round about this blessed crown. This, the third flaming, so it's, it's you know, uh, there's Albert, there's me, and now there's number three, rises from the smile of Gratian, he who lent both realms of law assistance that delighted paradise. This is the Gratian, the compiler of ecclesiastical law. The other near him who adorns our choir was Peter, Peter Lombard, who gave his widow's might, his simple treasure to the Holy Church. Peter Lombard may be considered as the founder of the scholastics, uh, of this whole scholastic method. Um, very important, but he's here as certainly subordinate in intellect, right? He gave his widow's might. He gave all he had. Most beautiful among us, the fifth light breathes with such love that all the world below is gluttonous to hear of him. Within that radiance is the high mind blessed to know to such great depths. No second ever rose who saw so much, if what is true is true. And we're going to find out later that this is Solomon. And the specific kind of knowledge that Thomas is referring to is not uh, theological knowledge, broadly speaking. It's that knowledge that is appropriate for Solomon's position as king. Right? No wiser king ever rose upon the earth. See where the candle there beyond him glows. He in the flesh most deeply peered into angelic being and its ministries. Dionysius, uh, or pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite, um, writing about the heavenly hierarchies. Uh, tremendously influential for the art and the theology of the Middle Ages. And also, through a Dionysus, always associating God with light. The following lantern glimmers with the joy of that defender of the Christian days who helped Augustine by his history. So now we, now we got a historian, Paulus Orosius. Now, if your mind will follow upon my praise, your eyes proceeding on from light to light, you'll thirst to know about the eighth. Now, here, notice, this is everybody... Uh, a lot of these souls that they get one tercet, they get three lines. This guy gets nine, okay? And it's important that he gets nine because he saw all that was good. Now in delight shimmers that spirit who made manifest how the world cheats to all who hear him right. The flesh, whence he was driven, lies at rest in the crypts of Cheldoro, but he came from martyrdom and exile. To this piece. That is the soul of the martyr Boethius, 
um, executed by the Goths under Theodoric in the uh, early 6th century um, on, a, on a trumped up charge of treason. Okay. And from his prison, he wrote his most famous work, The Consolation of Philosophy. It's the Boethius unjustly charged and suffering martyrdom that uh, Dante is referring to here. And in the Consolation of Philosophy, he deals with the question of what, what is true good? Um, why do evil people seem to prosper on earth? What's going on with that, right? I mean, it's, it's a book that everybody should read. Okay? So it's actually a slim book and it, you don't have to be a philosopher or a theologian to read it. It's maybe the greatest book ever written by somebody in, uh, in a prison. Okay? And one of the greatest books ever written, period. All right? Beyond him see the ardent souls, the flame of Isidore, of Bede, of Richard, he who was in contemplation more than man. Richard of St. Victor, you are interested in this. He too, uh, his, his, his sensibility and his view of uh, man's ascending towards God in contemplation is all over the place in Dante's Paradise. This one at whom your sight comes round to me is the gleam of a soul who came to bear thoughts that so burdened him, death seemed too slow. He is the light eternal of Siger who when he lectured in the street of straw, syllogized truths that made him hate it there. Seizure of Ravant, um, I don't want to get into it too much here. You can even look at the notes, but in life, uh, Thomas Aquinas condemned him. Okay? Um, condemned him for drawing too close to the Arabic philosopher Averroes in uh, perhaps positing that, uh, well, a, a, a kind of determinism in the world, which would, uh, eliminate free will in 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 the human soul, and um, perhaps also not the um, survival of the individual soul after death. I mean, Siger was, uh, you know, uh, uh, accused of drawing near to those beliefs or actually proposing them. And what Dante is doing here is suggesting that uh, that is a misinterpretation of Siger. Funny thing is that he puts it on the lips of Thomas Aquinas, who was in the forefront of saying, you know, what this guy is saying is not right. All right. So he is gently correcting Thomas. Um, and he is total admirer of Thomas, right? My, I think I told you that my old professor from Princeton has said that he believes that Dante wrote the Divine Comedy in honor of Thomas Aquinas, for Thomas Aquinas. All right. Now, the image that ends this canto, and I will end this part of, of today with it, is an image of order, okay, in differences. And the differences also imply subordination, right? There is no real order without subordination. Um, and it's the image of a clock. And if you've ever looked inside an old clock, um, you'll know what we're talking about here. So that the canto began, the can, canto began with uh, images written on the heavens themselves of time. And it ends with a comparison of the grace of God as manifested in these 12 souls and their dance and their song together, comparing that with um, an artificial human creation 
that is meant to tell the time, okay? And in some ways, the clock is like the heavens. Then like a tower clock that tolls the hour when the bride of the Lord rises to sing morning song to her spouse to win his love, sounding so sweet a knelling of ting-ting as all the gears within it push and pull. A soul that's well disposed must hear the ring and swell with love. So now I saw that wheel rendering voice to voice in harmony and in sweet temper that no man can feel if not where joy is for eternity. Um, words fail me in describing the beauty, uh, the complexity, the precision, and frankly, the utter simplicity, the apparent simplicity of those lines. Um, we've moved just in a snap of the finger there from time to eternity. And yet we've done so by an image of a thing that tells time. And yet it tells time because it is oriented towards eternity. In fact, it rings when it's time for the monks or the friars to get up to sing matins as the bride of church, the bride of Christ that is the church, singing morning song to her spouse to win his love. And those gears can't all be of the same size because then the clock wouldn't work. The clock is supposed to tell time in a variety of ways. The gears all have to be of different sizes in order to get things to move at different speeds. And that too is reflective of um, the vast and complex order of the world that God has made. Okay. So I, this is a really, um, I think this is an appropriate place to stop. Uh, and so what is it, it's 8.30. So we'll, we'll reconvene here at 8.40, okay? Oh, sorry, uh, this is not, this is 9.30 here, uh, Eastern time. So um, at 20 to the hour, we'll, we'll come back. So, Perfect. All right. Uh, is Nicole back? There's Nicole. Yep, I'm here. <laughs> okay, so uh, now, as always, it's time for questions. Also, like always, you can type them, but I highly suggest you ask them. <laughs> Dale has 10 questions. <laughs> He's muted. You have to unmute there. yourself. <laughs> unmuted. I, I unmuted there. Sorry. I put up two hands because I have two questions. Uh, could you please expound a little bit on that wonderful point you were making, Tony, about uh, hell and purgatory being physical, but Paradiso not being physical, more allegorical? Is it because... It's eternity, so it's transcended time, so it has it also transcended place. But if you could just expand on that, please. That's the first question. Yeah, that's an important question. And um, I'm glad that you bring this up, okay? Uh, the, the thing about paradise as Dante experiences it is that, um, the again, the souls do not live on the moon or in Jupiter and so, and so forth, right? They are all in the presence of God. Now, um, that does not mean that they no longer have location because God himself is the source, the fountain of all time and all space, of all location, okay? 
so to be in the presence of God is to be, uh, you know, I guess in the ultimate location, right? Mm. And um, and the same thing or a comparable thing can be said about the body. Uh, and here I would like to go to a, a, what I think is a deeply moving passage and, and a crucial passage for understanding the paradise, right? And this is something that people who don't know much about Christianity uh, either don't get or have not the slightest idea Christians believe, okay? Um, I heard once from a rather chuckle-headed news reporter in Rhode Island on <laughs> Easter, okay? It's always on Easter, you hear stupid things like this. Um, uh, that um, this this was Easter Easter Sunday, the day when Christians believe um, Jesus rose into heaven. The soul of Jesus rose into heaven. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, it's it's like saying, uh, yeah, I was at a baseball game and it was uh, it was third down and two from the twenty yard line, and the goalie missed the puck. I mean, it, it it's almost impossible to describe in how many ways it gets it wrong. Okay? Um, and uh, so um, in Cano fourteen, this on page one hundred forty five, uh, Beatrice says to um, uh, that that fifth light, that that soul that is brightest in the sphere. Now that was Solomon, and we've already been told this is ironic, but we've already been told that Solomon is there for his wisdom as a ruler. But it's to Solomon that this question is addressed, and not Thomas. And that that probably also is very important too. But the question is simply this: Line ten. Um, he has a need he cannot yet express to follow another truth down to the root, a need he cannot utter with his voice or set forth in his mind. So this is a, he wants to know something that he can't put into words. He can't even fashion it in his mind. Okay. Tell if the light garlanding you like soul adorning flowers remains for all eternity so bright. And if the light retains its brilliant powers, Say why the vision will not make you feel pain when your forms are visible once more. So you're so bright now, okay? Tell us if they, you will always be this bright. Now, this is analogous to a question that Dante asks Virgil after he meets the glutton Chaco in hell. He says, you know, what about these souls here? Uh, when they are reunited with their bodies, Will they feel the same pain or less pain or more pain? And Virgil essentially answers in a Thomistic way. Look, know what a human being is. A human being is this soul body composite. Okay. Soul is the form of the body. They're meant to be together. Right. Uh, therefore, they will be the souls down here and punishment will be more, so to speak, perfect then than they are now. That is to say, they their pain will be more perfected, all right? So it'll be the worst for them to be reunited with their bodies. Um, the souls in purgatory, like uh, the souls in heaven, long to be reunited with their bodies. Um, and uh, this question here 
says, well, when you are reunited with your bodies, will that mean that the light not shine as brightly? But if it does shine as brightly as shining now, won't that be a problem? Won't it cause pain? Now, there's a, there's a very simple way to answer this question. It's to say, no, we'll not cause pain and just be over with, okay? But that's not what Dante does. Um, because we're, we're touching upon here uh, one of the, we're touching upon here like one of the ultimate blessings that God confers upon man, what it means even to be risen with Christ. So as dancers dancing in a merry reel will raise their voices in a rush of glee, all of their gestures lighter in the heel. So they start dancing more happily when they hear the question. So to that most devout and ready plea, the holy circlings showed me a new joy in their revolving and their wondrous song. Whoever on earth laments that we must die to live above in heaven does not see the sweet refreshment of the eternal reign. That ever living one and two and three, that ever reigns in three and two and one, uncircumscribed and circumscribing all, Three times was hymned and praised by every one of those souls in so sweet a melody as would reward all merit. So they sing to the Trinity, and the Trinity is uncircumscribed, but circumscribes everything. The whole created universe is circumscribed by the Trinity. Okay? To be circumscribed is to be a creature. Um, to be circumscribed as we are is to be a physical creature. Right? And we know of that two in there, the Son of God, that the Son of God was made flesh, became man, and dwelt among us. So, um, from the light most fully radiant with divinity, in the inner ring, I heard a gentle voice. It might have been the angels when he spoke to Mary. Now, and that too brings the incarnation before our awareness, right? It's the mystery of in, the incarnation is here folded into the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the Godhead itself, God uncircumscribed. Okay? And now we answer a question about circumscribed entities, namely bodies, um, as they are united with other circumscribed entities, namely human souls. In the Feast of Paradise, for the length of eternity, our love will fold us in the vestment of these rays. They blaze according to the ardor of that love, ardor from vision, vision as wide and deep as grace abounding far above our worth allows. How bright we shine depends on the love, and the love we have depends on the vision we are granted, and the vision we are granted depends upon the grace of God abounding far above our merit. When blessed and glorified, the flesh is robed about us once again. We shall be lovelier for being whole. Whence the gift of illuminating grace granted us by the highest good will, shall grow light that disposes us to see his face. And in that light then must our vision grow. Grow then the ardent love it sets aflame wherein the radiance of the flesh shall Oh, so it's not, you know, we'll shine just as bright as before. It's we'll shine brighter, more brightly. And what about the flesh? 
but as a fiery coal that gives off flame, conquers it with its incandescent white, preserving its appearance all the same. So now you're to imagine a white hot coal in the midst of flame, okay, preserving its exact contours and outshining the fire around it. So this surrounding gleam of heavenly light will be defeated by the luminous flesh that now lies tombed in earth. The flesh will shine brighter than this glow, this ardent glow of spiritual love that you see around us now. Nor will the might of its new radiance trouble us with pain, for strong enough will be its organs then to bear all things that bring us more delight. Now here's the stunning passage here, right? Just a few lines. So prompt and ready was the loud amen. Both choirs responded. It was clear to me how much they yearned to see their flesh again. Maybe less for themselves than for their mamas, their fathers, and the others they held dear before they had become eternal flames. Forse non pura per loro, ma per le mamme. It's mamas. It's the affectionate childlike word. It's not even mothers, it's mommies. Why do they want to see their flesh again? Well, they all long to have that flesh again. Maybe less for themselves than for their mamas, their fathers, and the others that they loved. Um, the flesh is, for the type of creature that we are, right, the flesh is our means of love for a communication with one another. They want to see each other's faces fully, their, each other's bodies to touch, right, to embrace. The body is for the communication of love. So I should say that in very important ways, heaven is more physical than purgatory and inferno, okay? We might say hyperphysical or transphysical. Um, the very source of bodiness is from God. Um, and they'll have glorified bodies, not tenuous sort of thin, wispy, ghost-like bodies, but bodies that are more really bodies than what we have here now. And they long for those bodies, maybe less for themselves than for their mamas. That's an amazing one. Total surprise, too. You're reading a lot of this in Italian, and it's really high theology. And I don't want you to get the word mommies. And, of course, it links back to what he has just said. Solomon's voice sounds like, it sounds like the voice of Gabriel when he spoke to Mary. Nobody but Dante and Shakespeare could do something like that, that, they, that he just did. Uh, does that answer the question, Dan? Yeah, that was a pretty, pretty good answer, Tony. I have to okay. say that was exquisite. I have a second question, but I'll let someone else ask okay. their question first. And if there's no one, then I'll go back to my second question. Okay, they ran out of time. I'll ask my <laughs> second question. <laughs> that was quick. Yeah, no, that was, 
he who hesitates. All right. So back in Canto 10, when you the, the last thing that you were talking about before the break, you brought up our friend uh, Seiger, or who I call Siger the Tiger. Siger the Tiger. <laughs> and what's going on there? Thomas Aquinas truly had a disagreement with uh, with Siger the Tiger. Is Dante defending him, or what's what's going on there? Because as I yeah, it, you know what I I need to refresh my memory about the Averroism business. Okay, uh, Seiger. Um, Seiger was accused of being an Averroist. Uh, that would mean that he, you know, held to the Arabic philosopher Averroes, who Dante puts in the circle of the virtuous pagans, right? He's the great commentator upon Aristotle, the great commenter, Averroes. Um, but Averroes didn't believe in the survival of the individual soul after death. He did not believe in the individual intellect. Um, he's also criticized in purgatory. Uh, he believed that each human intellect was a participation in or a portion of the only uh, active intellect, which was the divine intellect. This would uh, essentially destroy the freedom of the individual will. Um, and uh, this is kind of an impersonalism uh, in, in God and the sort of reabsorption of the human soul into the divine, but not as individuals. Um, that uh, characterized Averroism. And God Averroes declared a heretic by the Muslim, uh, by the Muslim uh, teachers. And um, when that happened, and along with him, the other, the other Islamic philosophers, Islamic culture went into a nosedive, from which it has never recovered. Okay? Um, and there was no way around it because the Quran is, is quite clear. And, you know, the, the Quran just doesn't leave any room for the intellectual life. I'm afraid I have to say something, like that, but it doesn't really. Uh, I mean, it's really tough, but the, the Christian Bible is co completely different. The Jewish scripture is completely different kind of thing, okay? I mean, the Quran basically talks about itself constantly and says, you got to believe this, and if you don't believe this, then you, you're, you're, you know, th this, these are the exact words. They don't even need interpretation, okay? Um, in any case, uh, so Averroes was drummed out, um, but uh, Thomas and Dante didn't know that he had been drummed out of Muslim philosophy, of uh, Muslim culture. Um, so they're still, they were still struggling with him, with great philosopher. And Seiger seemed to be an Averroist, and that got his, uh, got his propositions condemned in, um, in Paris. And Thomas Aquinas himself fell under suspicion of being more of an Aristotelian than a Christian. And uh, some of his uh, works were temporarily under the ban. Um, but that was an overreaction. And the, yeah, the I, church quickly corrected what I, it. What I understand about uh, Thomas Aquinas' differences with Siger the Tiger was that he felt that Siger the Tiger was splitting truth into there's two truths. There's a that's true. A that's, true. That's, truth that, that, that's what Averroes and Avicenna okay. also did. Okay. okay. So uh, if you ask Averroes, well, uh, you know, um, his actual name was Ibn Rushd. Um, so if you say, hey, uh, Rushdi, uh, what do you make of the Quran? What do you make of religion? He would say, well, listen, there are two kinds of people. There's the very thin minority. You know, those are philosophers. They can understand these things. Okay. 
Uh, and then there's the people, you know, who have to be guided by religion because they can't think in abstract terms. So, you know, you got to give them, you got to give them shows. Um, uh, but they don't, you know, you know, they don't understand that when Mohammed is talking about paradise there, we're not really to understand it that way at all. In other words, um, there, there's a split uh, between uh, what we philosophers believe and understand and what the rest of you believe and understand, but we won't mess with you. You know, it's, it's good for you and it's good to keep the social order. Okay. Uh, Siger seemed to believe something like that when he suggested that there were the truths of philosophy and then there were the truths of faith. And well, you know, I mean, I can believe them both, even though they seem to contradict one another without bothering to resolve the contradictions. And sorry, but that's not going to fly with uh, Thomas. Now, Dante seems in his middle years, right? So after his youth, but before um, he starts to write the Divine Comedy, uh, seems to be sliding towards Averroes, okay? Um, That would be a slide towards uh, the position of his friend and fellow poet Guido Cavalcanti. Um, that may be the big sin of forgetting Beatrice that uh, Beatrice invades against and at the end of Purgatory uh, blames him for. Okay, And it may be what uh, put Dante in that dark wood, lost in that dark wood. But here he seems to recover Seizure to say, essentially, you know, I'm going to have Thomas say that Seizure didn't really believe what they thought he believed. Okay. Um, he syllogized truths, but because people didn't really understand what he was getting at, they misinterpreted him and they caused him so much trouble that he wanted to die, basically died. Um, and he has Thomas say this. Um, Dante gets away with that. Does that, does that, does that, uh, this help? Yeah, that, that helps. And that's great. Thanks very much. I'll, I'll give the floor to somebody else. Great. Thanks so much, Tony. By the way, and he also has, Dante also has Bonaventure do the same, although it's less flagrant. When Bonaventure mentions his last soul in his ring, uh, the abbot Joachim of Flora, uh, Joachim the Calabrian mystic, uh, who believed that we were in the age of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, he was kind of a lunatic um, with apocalyptic visions, you know, of the end times being upon us. And uh, he was a Franciscan friar, and the Franciscans gave him a stiff arm. Bonaventure was the head of the Franciscans. Bonaventure was a very shrewd man. Uh, he was himself a mystic, um, but he was not going to put up with nonsense, okay? And he gave the same stiff arm to Joachim that Thomas gave to Seiger. And uh, Dante kind of liked Joachim of Flora. Um, Dante has his own apocalyptic visions of the near future. Um, And so he has Bonaventure basically say, you know, there's Joachim of Flora there, by the way. any uh, and or questions? Did you uh, um, did you hmm, 
did you enjoy the business with Francis and Bonaventure and Dominic? Well, Professor, uh, yes, but I actually want to stay right where we are for a second. Okay. <laughs> if I could, right, right above that, um, in, in Canto 10 lines 130, 132, uh, we have the the, the flame of Isidore, of Bede, and of Richard. And, right. and first off, I'm right, that's not being used in a nominative way, like there's someone who, who is there, who is the flame of the, he, he means that the three of them are there. Right. right. There's the flame okay. of Isidore, the flame of Bede, the flame of Richard. Right. Um, okay. That's the, yeah, they're there. Right. Uh, you, you talk broadly about why some of them are getting, you know, more or less ink in this canto. Um, in, in particular, are there reasons that you're aware of why these three are getting so little? I mean, my no, son's just going to be happy that his, his confirmation saint got a name drop, St. I mean, uh, yeah. Isidore. Uh, right. Um, uh, Richard is here given a special nod, okay? Um, so when you occupy the first place, that's good. And when you occupy the final place, that's good, okay? It's the climactic place. And, um, and in a certain sense, before we get to Seizure, it's really Richard that's the punctuation mark. Uh, he was in contemplation more than man, um, old Richard of St. Victor. And, uh, uh, you know, it's the type of thing that Richard wrote may not be congenial to the modern spirit um, because it's so speculative. It's so allegorical, but it's really, really rich. Um, uh, mystical theology. Okay, um, the, the Victorines were noted for it, and I think uh, I think the fingerprints of Richard of Saint Victor were all, over, as I said, all over the place in um, in Divine Comedy here. Yeah, so I remember Richard. The others get mentioned in passing. Perhaps Dante didn't know them, uh, didn't know Bede as well, for instance. You know, uh, though I think the Venerable Bede was a giant. Also, mm. um, you know, uh, yeah, some get more, some get less. Yeah. By the I way, just, a, yes. uh, just to, to mention here, uh, that they get less, uh, we may have to ask in some cases why Dante did that, because there are notable either omissions or short shrifts in uh, the Paradiso. Like the, there's this titan of intellectual giant, right? In the first millennium of Christendom, whose name is St. Augustine. And we don't talk to him. He's mentioned in passing once or twice. That's it. Okay. And as far as popes are concerned, uh, I think I may have mentioned this before. There's this great, great pope, already a saint, a reforming pope, Gregory VII, Hildebrand. But Dante doesn't mention him at all. Um, the, the funny thing about Hildebrand is that uh, uh, he, he was notorious among the Protestant reformers 500 years later. Uh, because he opposed the German emperor. Um, and, uh, the, you know, it's, it's the, it's that devil incarnate, 
build the brand. Um, I, I've seen him called that in, uh, in uh, marginal gloss in one of the Renaissance, uh, one of the Renaissance Protestant Bibles. I thought it was funny. Um, anyway, uh, but there was. Uh, yeah. Professor, now, nowadays, I was thinking this would be, um, you know, we, we would explain that as, you know, why, why wasn't your favorite superhero in the big superhero <laughs> movie? Well, we had to keep it under three hours. You know, there's only so much time, but I don't think Dante was answering to producers. So no, he, he had wasn't. to have some, some no, better reason. <laughs> I mean, Dante is committed to the coordinate um, uh, institution of the empire with the church. An empire, of course, means a Roman Empire. It doesn't mean Russian Empire. Um, and so he would be kind of leery of uh, the great Augustine, whose work, The City of God, um, deliberately contrasts that city of God, not made by human hands, with the city of man. The city of man is a political city. Its name is Babylon, but what Augustine really has in his gun sights is Rome. Rome, Augustine says, founded on fratricide. Romulus killed Remus, his brother. Um, Rome is thus uh, analogous in its founding to the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain, after he killed Abel, was driven out from where his mother and father were living, um, he went forth with the mark of Cain on him. And he is the first in scripture. He's the first person to be said to have uh, founded a city. Okay. Uh, and, you know, Augustine's really strong animus against the Roman imperium uh, was not congenial to Dante. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it, it, Dante is going to have to figure out a way in his own mind and heart to come to terms with Augustine. But, gosh, it's hard to fit him into this place. Think about this, that the Emperor Justinian, who for a while was a heretic, as he says, okay, um, is given an entire canto, not of description. He speaks the whole canto. Beatrice doesn't speak a whole canto. Nobody in the poem speaks a whole canto, except for Justinian, an emperor, right? Uh, you know, so, you know, there may be, we, we would ask, well, why is Augustine so missing here? Uh, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a good question to ask. And um, we don't ever say of, of Dante, um, as we wouldn't say of Shakespeare, oh, well, you know, he just did it that way because uh, he felt like it. Um, well, is, is it because uh, Augustine is more of a Platonist by necessity because he hadn't read or been familiar with um, Aristotle? And, and it's... Yeah, the that's true. I, but I don't know how far we can go with that. Um, the uh, the knowledge of Plato that Dante had would have been very limited, right? Because they hadn't discovered, they haven't rediscovered uh, most of the other dialogues of Plato besides the Timaeus and a couple of scraps of other things. 
Um, they knew Plato by reputation, and then they knew the works of the successors of Plato 800 years, six, 700 years after Plato. Okay. So the Neoplatonic philosophers, Plotinus and Porphyry, um, yeah, they, I mean, they knew them. Uh, Celsus, uh, sort of. Um, but the, the thing about it is that uh, uh, there are um, there are authorities here who are deeply influenced by the whole Platonic way of thinking. Dante would have recognized that. Uh, so Dionysius the Areopagite, thoroughly Platonic, thoroughly Neoplatonic. Um, yet he has uh, he is uh, he too is is crucial for Dante's vision of paradise. Uh, Richard of Saint Victor, you know, I mean, there 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 are Platonizers everywhere, um, and there's a Platonic angle to Thomas himself. Um, so it can't simply be, I think, that Augustine was Platonist. Um, I think it, uh, in Augustine's case, I think we're, I think we're dealing with Rome, um, and that for Dante is a problem. Because uh, he, you remember what he says, uh, has Beatrice say um, about where Christ is and what kind of citizen he is, where Christ is Roman in that Rome above. Um, that's, you know, that's even tough for me to swallow. The name of the city above is Rome. Uh, that that's that's pretty daring. I have a question to read. Okay. So this is from Cody. He says, "I read Vita Nuova last week. I loved it, but thought it was a very strange book. It felt too. It felt to me like a sort of preface to the Divine Comedy. Is this correct? And what are we to make of Beatrice? I was particularly struck by the end of Vita Nuova." Dante looking at Beatrice and Beatrice looking at the one who through all ages is blessed. How is this and how this image reappeared in Canto on a Paradise? Okay, well, um, uh, that's a complicated question to ask. Uh, when he was writing it, did he think that this would lead him to the Divine Comedy? And I think the answer to that is probably no. But by the end of it, he says very clearly, that he intended to write something the like of which had not ever been written in honor of any woman before, okay? And he does associate that very consciously with Christ, okay? And the last word in La Vita Nuova, blessed, is not in Italian. It's not Benedetto. It's Benedictus, okay? The whole last line is in, in, is in Latin. Qui est in omnia saecula benedictus. And with that word benedictus, we think immediately of the mass and the psalm in Latin. Um, benedictus qui venit in nomine domini. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? That's part of the psalm that's recited, that's sung on Easter. Okay? Um, this is the day the Lord has made. Um, the stone which the builders rejected, etc. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, so he ends with Benedictus, not Benedicta. So it's masculine, okay? Um, and he is clearly alluding to Christ. 
So he's going to write something about Beatrice that is related to Christ. How clear that was in his mind, even at the end of Lobitimovic, I don't know. Okay. But looking back on it, after he has written the Divine Comedy, we can see La Vita Nuova as a kind of preface and see what Dante is doing, especially in purgatory, all right, is revisiting, consciously revisiting the poetry of his own youth uh, and seeing it in a clearer light, perhaps even clearer than when he was writing it. Although when he was writing La Vita Nuova, he was doing that same thing. That is, even when he was writing the Vita Nuova, he was looking at his earlier love poems and using them some, some ways, sticking them in La Vita Nuova uh, to try to examine that question. What the heck does it even mean to be in love? Right. And answering that question in a more mature and philosophical and theological way than he had been capable of answering it when he was younger. Um, so that, you know, even La Vita Nuova is kind of retrospective on his most youthful love poetry as purgatory is a retrospective on his on La Vita Nuova and his other works um that's it, 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 it's a super genius who does this okay but it does seem uh it's it's strongly suggestive let's just leave it at that um but the, the whole idea of the divine comedy I, I don't know that we can say that that was certainly present there that might be a bridge too far. Roseanne, do you want to ask it or do you want me to read it? She's, if you unmute your, yeah, unmute yourself. There you go. Okay. Uh, was comedy ever um, banned by the church? I, I seem to recall hearing that when I was much younger in parochial school. I had the impression that his condemnation of Boniface VIII and other popes might have made him considered heretical. Um, what was the history of his acceptance by the church? You know, I think that, uh, I don't know if the Divine Comedy itself was ever on the index. Um, the work that really got him on the index was the De Monarchia on monarchy, uh, because there he's He's deliberately attacking Boniface's papal encyclical Unam Sanctum. Uh, Unam Sanctum is the most notorious and strongest worded uh, encyclical on papal authority and the superiority of the Pope over every other holder of public office of any kind in the world. Okay. Um, Pope superior to any king, any prince. Um, and Dante, Dante didn't accept this. Okay. Uh, and he's writing in direct opposition to, to Unum Sancta. Uh, and he is positing in De Monarchia a kind of, um, uh, a kind of equality and coordination, not equality in honor, because the church is to be honored more than the empire. But in, other, in all other respects, uh, functional equality between them. And um, that uh, uh, 
mm. church was not going to put up with that. Um, so, I mean, that, 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 that's the main thing they, they get bugged about. Um, I don't think it was controversial to suppose that there were lots of uh, bishops in hell and even some popes. Um, the specificity of it is the problem. This particular pope is in hell. Now, that would be a problem. Um, but that there would be popes in hell is not a problem. Um, St. John Chrysostom himself, I believe, said that the roads in hell are paved with the skulls of bishops. Um, that maybe should be put on a medallion for all bishops to wear in the shape a medallion in the shape of a millstone um, just to, as a spiritual safeguard to, to remind them, you know, uh, you got a lot of authority. You better not, uh, you better not use it badly. That's why God gave you the authority, but it's a very risky thing. So that might, that might have been, you know, Dante was immediately and tremendously uh, famous. You know, it, it, I don't know that there is anybody comparable in the West um, until Shakespeare uh, becomes a part of all the school curricula in English-speaking places in the late 19th century. If you're Italian, you read, you're Italian and you're an intellectual, you read that. Everybody reads that. Um, Boccaccio whose life overlaps with that of Dante, I believe I mentioned this before, actually gave lectures on Dante in the university. And there's nothing comparable uh, to that at, at, at the time, or, and nor would be for centuries. You know, somebody giving lectures in a university about a poet who is writing in your own mother tongue? It's unheard of. Why do you need a university lecture for that? You can read them. So in your own mother tongue, that's how uh, that's how important um, Dante was. Thanks. I have a good question. Yes. <laughs> kind of off of that, and more out of curiosity than anything, um, why isn't Dante's, um, you know, why hasn't he been opened to sanctity or what well, canonization? Why? Is, <laughs> And, and much, I mean, even further than that, why not even consider him a doctor of the church at this point, considering that he has written things that are, I'd say, almost on par with that of St. John of the Cross. You know, it just seems very intensely spiritual. And, and, and a, again, it's, I, I'm just curious what you have to say about that. Well, I, I wouldn't press for his canonization. Um, uh <laughs> Uh, he himself wouldn't remember, but he says, you know, I'm going to be spending a lot of time there in purgatory, uh, especially in the ring of pride. Um, St. John of the Cross is uh, canonized because of the holiness of his life. Um, that he was a great poet is part of the form that his holiness took. Uh, but I don't know that anybody ever accused Dante of having led uh, a holy life, um, a righteous life, yes. Uh, a holy life, that, that's a tougher question, okay? Um, so I think the church has wisely reframed 
Um, you know, uh, the Episcopal Church, uh, certain certain strands of the Episcopal Church will make a saint out of anybody who is pretty good in life and wrote well. Um, you know, so I think that some Episcopal churches have they set aside for John Milton. I, I wouldn't, you know, uh, Dante was a pretty prickly personality. Um, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. I'm pretty confident, pretty confident about his eternal destiny. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't go f- too much farther than that. Um, and and so because of that, he can't be made a doctor of the church. Well, if I could just interject here, we're trying to get a certain uh, writer <laughs> slash poet canonized. And uh, I think the main reason nothing's gone on with Dante, there's, there's no cult devoted to him and, and to his people asking for his intercession. I mean, I've never heard of a cult surrounded, surrounding Dante as a, as a holy person, but we do have that with Chester. But let me tell you, it's hard to get literary people canonized. I'm just telling you. Well, it was hard to get John Henry Newman. That's right. right. Yeah. Fulton Sheen, too. Yes, right. I mean, they leave too big a paper trail. Amen. That's right. That's it right there. Fulton Sheen's genius. Um, Don't think of him as just a television personality. His his initial work based on his doctorate at the Louvain, uh, you know, God and Modern Philosophy. I can't remember the exact title. I have it here. I read it. It was called God God and Intelligence, and and, uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote the introduction to it. It's, It's an amazing work. Um, uh, you read it and you realize, by the way, how far uh, intellectual life has sunk in the universities because uh, uh, Sheen, as was common in the day, Sheen will just cite large passages in French and Italian in his uh, work and not bother to translate them. Why do you need them translated? You're a smart person. You can't read French. You can't read Latin. What's wrong with you? No. Uh, I find the same kind of thing in it works from the 1920s, and 1930s, when they quote a long passage in German. Well, you can't read German. Why not? What's wrong with you? Uh, you're at a university and you can't read German. I'm not going to bother translating it for you. Come on. Wise up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I think Bishop Sheen could do what he did on television just because he had all that in right. his head. You know? <laughs> yeah. And he had that wonderful ability that Chesterton had of making it uh, available um, to anybody, okay? Um, These are guys who could talk to anybody um, without making it appear that they were condescending. It's it's really remarkable. You know who else possessed that capacity and you wouldn't suspect it, but you read his sermons and it was John Henry Newman. I mean, there's Newman giving sermons, by the way, to deliver one of these sermons would take you at least 40 minutes. Uh, you know, people went to church. They wanted their money's worth. So they wanted a sermon, you know. You're giving me five minutes of a sermon here. I, I'm not going to give you anything in the collection basket unless you give me a real sermon. Well, there's Newman preaching to uh, ordinary factory laborers where he was. And, uh, um, uh, uh yeah, if you want Newman's sermons in hardcover, yeah, you'll have to. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of sermons, but uh, talking to ordinary factory workers in an industrial city, 
and um, the 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 sophistication of what he says, amazing. Um, but he was he had that capacity to do that. Uh, of course, it may also be that people who could read, and you know, most people could read, were used to reading things of some sophistication because that's all there was, or that's most of what there was. Um, now, college students find it very difficult to read the published broadsides that surrounded the debate at the ratification of our constitution, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Tracts, right? I mean, these were written uh, for farmers and, you know, millwrights and uh, shipmen and other such people to read. Um, and now it takes a graduate student in a college because undergraduates find them too hard. And that's a fact. I mean, that's just a fact. It's a plain fact. You have to explain to college students what the words mean. Anyway, that's just a, a temporary harangue. There was a brief harangue. Um, it's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long day for me. Um, more questions. We have time for one or two more. Roseanne has another question. I uh, just to follow up um, on my question about uh, Dante being, you know, out of favor in the church, and then the interesting discussion that came along um, about his saint, his possible sainthood. Whenever I, I read um, the Paradiso, I am I feel that he must have been a mystic because he's. Oh, yes. So no, I think there's no question about that. So oh, okay, so that that would make him a saint, wouldn't it? No, revelation with God. No, no, not necessarily. Right. Um, we we still need the holiness. Okay. I mean, uh, you can um, not necessarily. I I I don't want to go farther than that. They just say not necessarily. Uh, but yeah, he certainly was, and, and I think it's clear even in La Vita Nuova, right? That he's he's describing mystical experiences, um, and uh, somebody who's really good writing about this is the um, French and then Canadian uh, philosopher theologian Etienne Gilson. Gilson wrote an excellent book about Dante. Okay, um, and he says, "Listen, there are these critics here who turn Beatrice into an allegory." Um, and forget it, okay? They don't understand Dante. If you don't understand what it might be like, even in your imagination, to be a man like Dante and have an overwhelming spiritual experience attached to your vision of this beautiful girl, okay? Um, then you have no business being a critic of Dante. Uh, Gilson insists it's real, okay? Something, whatever it was, overwhelmingly powerful really did happen to that boy. Um, and that it's very rare thing. Why, why should you be surprised? It's very rare that somebody should possess the sensitivity and the intelligence of Dante. Right. Um, so if you can't even imagine what it's like to be a person like that, then you have no business being a critic of Dante, but he, it's a great book, a great book that the Shilson wrote about. 
Yeah. Have you read Dorothy L. Sayers uh, at all on Dante? Because she makes the same point essentially that he what he saw he saw something real in order to have written what he, yeah. Actually, he did. Yeah, yeah, and I think all the um, you know when Dante uh, uh, Dante was Dante's always the man in Italy. Okay, you're either inspired by him or you're fighting against him in Italy. But his fortunes uh, sagged during the neoclassical period in the rest of Europe, you know, because uh, Dante's medieval. And uh, you, basically, you've got second-rate intellects carping at Dante. It's kind of embarrassing when you look at it. But his reputation surges again across Europe in the 19th century, the Romantic period. And if you look at w- what English writers and painters, okay, uh, are doing with Dante in the 19th century. It's it's clear to me they all believed he had this real overwhelming experience of the beauty of Beatrice, right? And they understood in a vague way, though they're you know about medieval uh, mysticism and Christian theology, they were often vague, but they understood in uh, a kind of way, right? That that this really was related to his um, to his uh, uh, longing for God. Okay. Um, so they all took it as real. You know. um, if you look at the paintings, uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti um, was inspired both in his poetry and in his painting by his namesake, uh, Dante. But he wasn't the only one. Everybody was. Um, okay, good. Teodolindo Barolini says the same thing. That's right. Uh, otherwise, allegory just turns into um, your little orphan Annie decoder ring, and you got you got your text and you stamp it with your decoder ring, and then you find out what everything is equal to, and you spit that back on the test, and you think you've learned something. Um, that's not this. <laughs> One more question. Yeah, I um, I have a question on when I was reading in Paradiso, I was struck by the frequent references to um, geometrical and scientific imagery, um, especially like uh, in Cantor Two. I think when they have like they describe the three mirror experiment to explain the yeah. um, that's in the moon. But not not only that. I mean, I I also see it like you know even just passingly talking about mathematical problems. Like I think there's uh, in the Canto with Solomon and so on. So I was wondering whether it's like a deliberate choice that he made that like you know, geometry and astronomy and the sciences are somewhat maybe symbolic of the intellect or something like that, or. Oh, more than that. symbolic. Oh, this is Daniel, right? Absolutely essential. Okay. See um, the key text here. Uh, and this is congenial to the whole Neoplatonic way of looking at things, but the key text is from the wisdom of Solomon that God made the universe. God made the world in measure, weight, and number. That was a key text for Augustine also, and for Boethius. Okay? When these guys talked about music, they talked about what they considered to be eternal uh, harmonies. Okay, um, And the, the thing to do as an artist, and this applied to the master builders of the great cathedrals, okay, uh, is to embody in your work uh, the numbers of creation. Um, 
that are not arbitrary. I mean, God has has made a beautiful, mathematically approachable universe. Um, hence, you have weird ratios of numbers in very def, very definitely chosen by the master builders of of the cathedrals. And Dante is very definitely choosing choosing his too. Um, and there's more to it than even I have gotten into. Uh, so, for instance, in two places in the paradise, in the paradise, Dante says that uh, on the um, on the diameter of a circle, um, you can't. Um, uh, how does he put it? You can't have two obtuse angles. Um, is that how he puts it? I can't remember now exactly how he puts it, but I don't know why I'm tired. It's flown out of my head, but there's, um, uh, or you, no, sorry, you inscribe um, on this, on a semicircle, you inscribe, you inscribe a triangle. One angle has to be a right angle in that. Okay. Um, and he does that twice in the paradise. And if you, the thing is, if you take the number of lines, and I can't remember how it exactly goes. And we're talking now about thousands of lines, right? Um, we got 33 cantos of roughly 140 lines each. So we got over, um, uh, we got about 4,000 lines, right? Uh, you'll get a right triangle. You know? I mean, he's put the thing exactly there so that the numbers will work out. I can't remember exactly how you count it from the beginning to the second mention from the uh, first mention to the end. So those are two sides. And then from the beginning to the end would be the third side. Uh, I, mean, I can't remember exactly how it works, but um, yeah, I mean, and, but the thing is, thing is, okay. Um, that for, see, Dante is writing in uh, 1321. He dies in 1321. Paradise is finished just before he dies for about 300 years. Okay, everybody is doing stuff like that. Um, if you're a great poet, artist, everybody's doing stuff like that. Um, even after the Protestant Reformation, right? They're still doing stuff like that. Um, Bach is doing stuff like that. It goes beyond more than 300 years if we include Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, everybody uh, takes for granted that mathematical structure um, is gets you close to um, the beauty of God as it's made manifest in the created order. Um, and, and they try to embody that, those numbers in their, in their artistic works. And uh, since that habit was lost, in the 18th century, the late 18th century, early 18th century in a lot of places, in the late 18th century in, in Germany and all. Um, it's, we, we modern scholars have had the, the kind of slogging work at reconstructing what those artists and poets were doing for 300 years. And, you know, it's like every, every year you find out more, oh, gee, oh, uh, uh, that's that's about one inch away from the calculus there what's going on in that cathedral 
Um, I mean, I could show you things in the English Renaissance poet Spencer that would make your head spin uh, with regard to uh, numbers and um, and the latitude of the place where he was getting married and the number of minutes in the day, the number of hours in the day that there would have been sunlight at that latitude um, and a whole host of other things. And you say, how is it possible? And, and yet it's not a poem about the universe. It's a poem dedicated to his wedding day. <laughs> okay. So I think, um, I think it's time for, uh, I think it's time for my brain to unwind or something. For you to so go to bed. I gotta go to bed. Um, is Jasper the dog next? Is Jasper the dog is next to me? Oh, come here, come here and say hello. <laughs> <laughs> you see them? You're not looking at them. All right, there you are. Yeah, uh, and it's time for me to say. You know, I I, I think I've asked him uh, in front of you, uh, Jasper. Do you love me? Are you my buddy? <laughs> Give me a kiss. <laughs> yeah, we know that we know that uh, God loves the world because he gave us dogs. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And, and you know what, uh, thinking Thomistically, you know what the end of dog is. The end of dog is to serve man and love him forever. And, uh, that's 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 Jasper here. Okay, guys, we'll see you uh, next week. Have a good night, everybody. Night. For more of that, or to become a fellow today, visit MagnusInstitute.org. Copyright 2021, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.